Hello and welcome to episode 4 of More Queer Nymphs. My name's Claire M. Coombe, I'm a writer, freelance classicist and teacher, and I'm really interested in myths. In this podcast, I'll be exploring them as metaphors for issues of gender, identity, sexuality and feminism. Today I'm going to be talking about Scylla, or Scylla. I will refer to eating disorders in this episode, so please bear this in mind and switch off if the content could be triggering for you. I guess Scylla is one of the more recognisable names in mythology. If we say between Scylla and Charybdis, we're talking about being caught between a rock and a hard place. And that's because in Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus has to travel a path between the two voracious monsters, choosing to go near Scylla because he thinks guaranteeing the loss of only six men is better than risking the loss of all his crew to the whirlpool Charybdis. Circe warns him of his predicament in advance and describes the Pelorcacon, dread monster that is Scylla. From her we are told that Scylla has the voice of a young puppy, the word Skulakos, perhaps recalling Scylla's name, but this is deceiving. According to Homer, she has twelve legs hanging down, six heads and three rows of teeth in each. Scylla eats dolphins, sharks and any passing beast of the sea, plus a sailor whenever she can get one. More than this, Circe says that Scylla cannot be defeated. In our Latin sources, as well as some Greek art, we find a hybrid monster, her upper body a woman, her lower either a mass of snapping dogs or a wolverine belly and dolphin tail. But why Scylla on a Myths podcast? Well, partly of course because I'm really into monsters and she's a good one, but also because of the version of her we hear about from Ovid, the story of Scylla before she was a monster. In fact, in general, the Roman version of Scylla is more interesting, in my opinion, than the Greek. Her origin story, then, is going to be the focus point of my discussion. We hear it in summary from Hyginus and at full length from Ovid. So, while not a sea nymph per se, Scylla was a close friend of theirs, and she generally hung out with them, except when they went out far to sea. She spent her time, we hear, telling them stories about the latest men she'd managed to avoid. So in Scylla, yet again, we see a woman who isn't interested in the men who pursue her. I wouldn't want to draw conclusions about her sexuality from this rejection. Plenty of straight women would tell you about the predatory attempts men make with unsolicited attention. Scylla may fall into that camp. Or maybe we should identify her as a queer character of some sort. Her friend Galatea is attracted to men, we know, but who knows about the rest of the female friendship group. Scylla has that unfortunate characteristic. She's attractive. Eventually, she catches the eye of the sea god Glaucus. He tries some pickup techniques and she has to run to get away from him. No to Glaucus doesn't mean no. And of course, he doesn't accept her fleeing. He pursues. He tries again and she again says no. But there's something about the incel in Glaucus. He perceives Scylla's withholding as evidence of her denying his rights. The fact that he's only recently become a sea god seems to exacerbate his feeling of justification in claiming her, the status demanding her attention. If he was once a lowly mortal, now he's managed to attain a position that should give him rights over her. Now he's become the powerful boss who thinks the employee will have to sleep with him because of the power dynamic. Believing this, he heads straight to Circe, whose magic he believes will help him. Now, 
Circe, on hearing his request for herbs or charms, decides to profess her own attraction to him and asks him to spurn Scylla for her. On the one hand, Circe manipulates the power dynamic here herself, but at the same time, Glaucus reveals the extent of his own self-created fantasy, where he loves Scylla and thinks in some twisted mentality that manipulating her through magic to sleep with him will be a fulfilment of that love. It would be nice to imagine that Circe would refuse to help Glaucus out of solidarity with Scylla, but it's wishful thinking. She's even less able to deal with rejection than Glaucus. Ovid tells us that Circe doesn't want to harm Glaucus, however, because of her feelings for him, an interesting parallel with his own lack of respect for Scylla. Yet there's little to redeem Circe here. She seeks vengeance instead on the woman who was preferred to her. Bathing places are not safe for nymphs and women in the countryside. They live in fear of horny satyrs, spying gods, careless mortals. But Scylla's danger came from another woman. Circe spikes the water of the pool where Scylla likes to go with potion, and when her rival sinks into the water, the magic begins to do its work. Dogs burst out from her groin, where her legs should be, a barking ring beneath her belly. And so she becomes the hybrid monster described earlier. Ovid says that she wreaks punishment on Ulysses, Odysseus, and his men, because she knows it will hurt Circe, because of Circe's fondness for Odysseus. So, that was the lesser-known story of our favourite sailor-eating monster. But what are the metaphors we can unpack here? Well, I've already mentioned that we have yet another case here of a woman whose fear and fleeing and no exacerbate the unwanted attentions she receives. Her power to consent is irrelevant to Glaucus, who thinks that he deserves her, and can therefore turn to drugging her if that's what it takes. It resonates with stories of predatory men making use of date-rape drugs to get from women what they would fail to get without them. In Circe, we have a woman in power who doesn't pull other women up with her. In fact, she's as bad, if not worse, than Glaucus. Now, I have a lot of time for Circe, and I will explore other versions of this uh, interpretation later on, but here we could definitely say that some insecurity in her drives her to punish the wrong person. But that leads me on to another element of this myth. Could we read it another way? Skinner is disempowered by the expectations placed on a beautiful woman. She should be available for men to seduce. She should be considered a risk and an enemy to other women. The first of these she rejects because she would rather be part of her female company, or at least prefers not to accept any of the men who try to claim her. The second of these is unfounded. In fact, she has this close group of female friends and would gladly let Glaucus have Circe and vice versa. In her monster form, we are no longer judging her on the same terms. She eats men and we accept it because she is a monster. Now, on the one hand, this is deeply problematic because it conforms to the idea that appetites in women are, by their nature, monstrous. Women should suppress appetites for sex, for food, for power, for attention. None of these beliefs about women has gone away. As a chronic anorexic myself, now mercifully in a solid period of recovery, I'm aware that I speak from a particular perspective about appetite. Efforts by others, or, I'm afraid, men, 
to quell my own power and identity have always led to me suppressing my own eating. It's a very complex picture, largely to do with control. But I also know that there's something here about conforming to a box that women are put in. I only realised perhaps the extent of this recently. I'd long denied that eating was an issue in and of itself for me. But I listened to my mother, who is absolutely obsessed with her own weight and equating weight with merit. And I can see how the patriarchy has put these expectations onto many women. So Skilla becomes a monster with a voracious appetite. Women's appetites, as Jess Zimmerman powerfully discusses in Women and Other Monsters, are always voracious. Men's are hearty. We could well equate this physical appetite with sexual appetite. Skiller, who rejected men, is now, as a monster, taking too many. Well, by the standards of the patriarchy, anyway. It's generally okay for women to end up dead. Think of the Amazons. Of course, there's something more here to consider. The position of those dogs. Monstrous creatures come in many forms. But the hybrid monster with the upper body humanoid and the lower body animal is common. Think centaurs, satyrs, anglopedal giants and so on. Notably, most of these figures present as male. We've got a few breasted centaurs in art. The sphinx has a prominent chunk of women's bodies in some depictions. But my instinct is that there's less of this for female monsters. In the presentation of Skilla we've just discussed, there's a recognisably female body above. But at the groin, she becomes the hybrid, not just an animal body, but multiple animals with hungry mouths. Where the vulva men like Glaucus wanted to get at was, now the dogs are. She's become a monster whose appetites are both literal, with devouring jaws, and sexual, the many mouths, symbolic of a hungry vagina. The idea that women want sex for their own pleasure is still one that extraordinarily caused controversy. It's been circling around on social media again in the past week or so, ever since Bette Midler proposed a Lysistra-esque plan for women to withhold sex as a response to the abhorrent rise in patriarchal control of women's bodies, particularly through the removal of abortion rights. However, not only does the suggestion have heteronormative connotations, it also presumes that women have sex with men for the men's benefit, not for their own pleasure and needs. Making female sexual pleasure at best other and at worst monstrous, is prevalent in mythological monster portrayal. Skilla becomes an example of this through her voraciousness. If, to return to Glaucus and his belief that she's denying him sex that should rightfully be his, we see the additional level of women who are criticised by certain men, including and perhaps especially among incels, for making selective choices about whom they will sleep with, either among men or not with men at all. The hybrid appearance of Skilla adds to this further. Her female upper body announces her to be one thing, her doggy lower parts say another. She symbolises a fear that women will lure men with their looks, but turn out to be a danger to them. The very fact that Circe planned this transformation, a female character, albeit written by men, suggests that she too buys into this fear. She sees Skilla's appearance as a threat to her, but she doesn't take it away entirely. Instead, Skilla becomes the embodiment of Circe's belief. This woman may seem attractive to Glaucus, but the monstrosity after the transformation reveals the reality. There's an appropriate irony here. 
given that Cersei too is alluring from the outside, but her magic makes her deeply threatening, as the famous example of her inviting Odysseus' men into her home, attracting them with beautiful singing and so on, only to turn them into pigs, shows. But I'd rather look at this a different way. What if we said Scylla is free? I'd well imagine that she'd have loved to have done more than just run away from Glaucus and his like, trying to tell her how much she ought to sleep with him. Odysseus, too, is more than a little shit with women. Maybe when she plunged down, she was keen to get him. I doubt, based on the behaviour of Greek soldiers in the Iliad, that his men had been much better. You can see why she might be eager to eat them. Read through this lens of freeing Scylla, we might see Circe's actions in a wholly new light. What if she endows Scylla with the power to escape Glaucus and his kind? Surely Scylla ends up a lot more like Circe, a powerful female figure, after her transformation. Let me expand a little on this idea. We make the assumption that once Scylla is transformed, she moves from beautiful to ugly, attractive to unattractive. This could be challenged on at least two levels. On the one hand, we might look hard at our definition of beauty. Scylla is beautiful because she is described as such by male authors, and because, in the myth, she is the object of a desiring male gaze, through characters such as Glaucus. When she becomes ugly, something to be feared and rejected, it's because she's a threat to men, such as Odysseus and other passing sailors. Yet this places limitations on the attractive to a single version of beauty. The other, the different looking, even the ugly, cannot be attractive according to this logic. However, such reductiveness leads to the conclusion that female attractiveness is the product of looks alone, and that those looks, furthermore, must conform to a certain model of beauty. On this idea, an entire industry has been built, of course, not to mention an entire fucking system within which women are always faced with falling short. If we think of Skiller's dogs as a mark of ugliness, a feature she should not have, we end up with a narrow and ableist version of attractiveness. Rather, could we think of them as a metaphor for power? Of course, in a misogynistic reading of the myth, that power is, in and of itself, monstrous, as we've already discussed. But what if it weren't? What if Scylla, freed from the male gaze and free to embrace her own appetites, is empowered by what she becomes? To take a short sidestep into the particular animal, the dog, as it appears in the myth, we might extend this metaphor a little further. Dogs were associated with Artemis, chaste and powerful, through her hunting dogs and dog characteristics applied to her. The negative connotations in patriarchal eyes probably extend to the long-standing use of the term bitch as a slur against women. Scylla, then, as part dog, might be seen to embody the same power and life choices in a masculine world. As a single woman who is childless by choice and who is regularly the butt of jokes concerning the status of my dog as a child substitute, I'm also drawn to the idea that Scylla ends up in a place she wants to be in her own cave, safe, surrounded by dogs. Finally, I want to address the complex level here that suggests all queer, non-male feminists hate men 
and that's symbolized by Skiller's eating of them. By and large, this is one I'm keen to reject. On the one hand, my discussion of female appetite needing to be allowed if we're to free women from patriarchal suppression goes some way to explain how this symbolism might work in our framework. On the other, we might also argue that Skiller eating passing men is a metaphor for the destruction of the patriarchy, rather than relying on an over-literal reading that it's about harming men. To take Odysseus' crew returning from Troy as an example again, we might see them as embodying the patriarchy's responsibility for war, for toxic masculine characteristics, and particularly for women's suffering in conflict. On account of Scylla's death, though she may have been restored to life, and we also see several of her in Virgil's underworld, play at the hand of Heracles, since she stole some of the cattle of Geryon. If so, a fitting reminder that the patriarchy demands that women with appetite for sex, power and even food must be suppressed, with death here a metaphor for denying women sexual pleasure, authority and the right not to be slim, the only sort of beautiful. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do go over to iTunes to rate and review it. I'll be back with more More Queer Nymphs in two weeks' time, when it seemed like it would be a good idea to look at Circe. In the meantime, for more nymphs, mythology, feminism, please do follow me at More Queer Nymphs on Twitter, on Facebook or on Instagram and you can find me personally in all those places too. Find out more about my writing at Claire C-L-A-R-E M for Medusa C-O-O-M-B-E dot com. My novel Camilla is available to buy on Amazon now. I'll see you in two weeks time and in the meantime here's Skiller's song. Who would be beautiful when you can have teeth grow out of your belly? Who would smell wonderful when your skin can exude all kinds of smelly? Who would have eyes that say, don't I excite you? I want a face that screams, touch and abide you. Don't think I'm tasty, my dogs think you're tasty. Wants to look magical, then you can eat seven men without blinking. Fuck all the physical, women are sexy when women are thinking. You think I'm frightening, gods that's uncanny. Could be the dogs growing out of my fanny Still think I'm sexy, yeah, power is sexy All that I needed, a cave of one's own Nobody judging for beauty 